Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake, and welcome to those of you watching online on the live stream at home or on replay via the app. We're glad that you are a part of this as well. We are uh, on part two of a series we're calling Advent. It's a series we do kind of every year. We change the scope of it every year. I'll address that in a minute. But uh, the word Advent simply means waiting or anticipating or uh, anticipating the arrival. Or as we said last week, kind of a watching and waiting, watching and waiting. And you know what this feels like if you've ever dropped off your significant at the other, at the uh, front of the store, because they're just going to run in for something real quick. Uh, and you just wait in the car, just wait in the car. I'll be fine. And you go and you wait, and then you are wondering what is taking so long and what is happening. Is there one register? Are, is everybody paying cash? Is uh, What is happening in, inside this store? And you're like, do I, do, do I go in? Do I wait out in the car? Whatever. We watch and we wait and we watch the, and the doors open and it's somebody else. And you're like, good grief. Um, so in that watching and waiting, uh, we learn some things or we, we process through some things or, you know, we spend some time on our phone and then that gets boring or, you know, turn on the radio or whatever. And all of a sudden, and sometimes we just sit in the silence and then it just is drawn out even more and all the kind of emotions with that. What's interesting about the, uh, the watching and waiting uh, period is um, that if you look at the Old Testament, which is, you know, the first kind of two thirds of your Bible, almost the second half of it in its entirety uh, is about a people who are watching and waiting. Uh, the the whole thing is we're watching and waiting for the advent of a Messiah. We're waiting for somebody to come and change things up and restore Israel into its rightful spot or bring us back to this, you know, this promise that was given to our forefather Abraham. And Israel is going to be a mighty nation. And yet we find ourselves in exile. We find ourselves at home, out of exile, but with walls that are broken down and temples that don't work and all kinds of different stuff. And, and so, so much of it is how long, Lord, how long will we wait in this, in this period? Oh, come, oh, come, uh, Emmanuel. Don't forget about us, God. We, he, 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 he shows up as, or he exists as kind of, we said last week, there's this Latin term, the deus abscondus, or the where is God, the apparent absence of God. Because you may not know this, but the, the, the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament is about 400 years. That's a long time to be asking the question, God, have you forgotten? God, have you forgotten? And what we said last week is that uh, even in the, in, in the Luke story, the, the first character that shows up is a guy named Zachariah, whose name means God remember us. Uh, God will always remember us or will remember us again. Still hanging on to this hope that God is not through with us quite yet. And that, that's important. I mean, it's a good thing. There, there's, there's, there's some things that you can learn only through the, there's like perspective that comes only if you uh, live and abide in that watching and waiting period. And so the church recognized that and they said, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we are going to practice a thing called Advent. We are gonna watch and wait. We are gonna try and put ourselves in the shoes of somebody who is living with this Old Testament reality who is waiting for God to show up in a certain way, waiting for the uh, you know the arrival of a new king or arrival of a new kingdom uh, or whatever? We are we are in these four weeks in that intertestamental period, watching 
and waiting, watching, waiting, hoping to kind of gain some perspective on this. It's the opposite of what our culture tries to do, which is to try and force us to celebrate as early as possible. I mean, they cannot wait to change the Christmas stations over, uh, you know, on the radio stations. Uh, the decorations just get earlier and earlier every year, and everything is about celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Uh, we, we count down to almost nothing other than the shopping days of the year left until, you know, this. And by the way, if you order today, we can guarantee shipping by tomorrow, you know, before Christmas. But if you wait any longer, it's always... It's always this pushing of the now, this sort of thing. And so it's a real good, uh, uh, when we go through Advent, if you've done this as a family or we decided to do this, as I wanted to be as your pastor, walking us all through this together as a church, practicing this idea of delayed gratification, delayed gratification. When everything else outside of the walls of the church are telling us to celebrate now, you deserve it, man. You, if you, listen, if you buy these gift cards, we'll throw in 20 extra dollars for your, you know, for your efforts. Um, you, can, you can be generous and also receive. It's the best of both worlds in this way. We go, listen, we are gonna practice delayed gratification. We are gonna wait. We are gonna sing songs that don't, that aren't necessarily celebratory. Like this Advent, I've created like this Advent play List for me, which a lot of somber, melancholic sort of music, uh, because I got so inundated with all of the stuff out there, just being like, you know, it's we're so excited about Christmas, so excited about Christmas, and then by the time Christmas gets here, it's not even all that exciting because it feels like a letdown. Whereas if you kind of go into the Advent season, it's like this slow, burning, aching, longing for something that then that builds up to Christmas Day, being able to sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Like that's exciting. My wife read something recently about how it feels like it's almost like a bow that's being drawn back, right? And the further back it goes, it just increases the velocity at which it will eventually take off. So Advent is the pulling back of the bow, anticipating the release and then Christmas Day, the celebration of all of this thing. So after I kicked it off last week, I got an email from somebody uh, within the church who said, all right, this, I'm you know, kind of new to all of this. And, and she was in first service. She's not even here, so I can talk about her now. But uh, just kidding. Uh, and uh, it is also a reminder, don't send me emails unless you expect me to be like, well, I got an email from somebody this week. You know what I mean? So just, you know, save them or whatever. But um, she asked, what's like, okay, I, I get it. And I, and I agree. Like I, I live in a world that has, it's very noisy. It's very all about Christmassy. And, and I kind of enjoy it. And I, I, I want to engage in some of that. I don't want to be a Scrooge through this whole thing, but like, what's the balance? What's the one thing that I could do? How do I keep in mind uh, what I'm trying to do? And I said, it's in, it's good. It's like, just recognize, recognize the spin that's taking place. Recognize the marketing that is out there that's trying to tell you, watch it, watch this. You're going to love it, right? Buy this. They're going to love it. They're selling you on the image constantly of somebody who crushes Christmas. You're the mom who got all the kids, all the toys that they wanted. You're so good at this. And you bought it when they, you know, they know what full price is and you use the discount code and your friends don't even know. They think you spent that much money on it. You're such a pro. You're so good at this, right? It's the, it's the husband, it's the wife, it's the distant cousin, it's the family member who wishes you drew them for Christmas because you're so good at this, right? That's what's being sold to us. And the buildup leads all up to this Christmas Eve night where everybody shows up at East Lake at three or five o'clock. It's a commercial, it's a plug, I'm just telling you. Three and five, you should show up at identical service. It's gonna be great. They show up, you show up in your dress, not in your finest because that's not really our style, but like a step up from what you usually dress in. Instead of a hoodie, maybe it's a, like a nice light jacket, something like that, right? And we're here and we're doing family Christmas photos in the lobby. And so you're taking those being like, I'll post these to social media. Then I don't have to send out Christmas cards. Here you go, mom. The kids are a little bit taller. Everyone's here together. We're still doing this. It's great. It's, it's fantastic. It's fun. It's all of that. And then you show up on a night like that 
and we get together in a room like this and, and, and on Christmas Eve night, we don't do any kids' rooms. Everyone's invited as a family. And so the, the room is packed and everybody comes out for Christmas. And I sit up here in, in a, probably on this exact stage in this exact you know, zone or whatever. And I read from you the story, the famous story of Christmas that shows up from Luke chapter two, where it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And I did that all from memory, guys. I didn't even look at my notes and I didn't even write it down in my notes because I know how to say that. I've been doing it for 11 years. It's the same dang message every year. I don't know why y'all keep coming back. It's the same thing. It's, it's, the, it's the most bogus thing. But I do this and, and, and uh, it's an important deal. And I, I, it, it starts for us, the Christmas story starts in Luke chapter two. But there's a beginning part to this. And we could have gone a bunch of different directions in terms of Advent. For this year, what I wanted to do was say, all right, it is interesting to me that the, the story that we're all familiar with, the Christmas story, starts in Luke chapter two. But Luke was trying to kind of communicate a story, right? He starts off his, in, in verse one of chapter one, saying, I'm writing to you, dear Theophilus, this friend, person, or whatever, um, because you've heard a lot of different rumors about this person of Jesus, and I wanted to write an orderly account for you. I, I wanna tell you, what I know, and I know a bunch of people who knew a lot of things or what I eyewitness accounts. So let me get an, an orderly account for you so that you can hear it uh, as, as close to the original source as possible about who Jesus was and what he meant. I mean, that's, that's essentially what Luke's gospel was. That's what the gospels were. In the New Testament, you have four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them, everything that we know about the person and the life of Jesus, what he said, where he went and what he did and who he healed shows up in one of those four books. We said last week what's interesting about it is uh, Mark and John, the second and the fourth, have no birth narratives at all. They don't care about Jesus' birth. They kind of start in different areas. Mark starts with, with him as an adult going into the desert. Uh, and John starts off with this kind of long soliloquy about like Jesus being the Logos God made known. Like everything that you think you know about out there is right here. He's really building on this really super high Christology. Matthew and Luke contain the only birth narratives about you know, shepherds and wise men and an inn with no room and stars and all that kind of stuff. Everything that we know about Christmas comes from one of those two locations. And so for us this year, we're focusing on, on Luke's take about it. What was Luke trying to communicate? Why did Luke feel the need to A, write his gospel in the first place and then B, include in it a birth narrative? What does he want us to know about the birth of Christ? It's gonna shape and, and influence our perspective of how we see and who we see Jesus as. So uh, with that in mind, it's Luke chapter one. We, we kicked off last week and we said, all right, and building up to chapter two, where he goes into the, in the, those days, Caesar Augustus, blah, blah, blah. Um, he says there's a, he, he brings, he reaches back into Old Testament history and brings forward this famous trope about an old man and an old woman who are married, who are barren, who can't have any kids, right? God shows up in the Old Testament several different ways. Uh, people are like, we can't have kids, we can't have kids. And kids were the hope. This was our lineage. Uh, this was how we, you know, experience life and joy and fulfillment and blessing. We are blessed with kids. This is going to be, uh, and, it, and there's public shaming when, when they don't have it. Oh, they didn't have any kids. And so ooh, there must be something wrong with that, right? Um, it wasn't a choice for them. It was like, there was no choice. This is how they experienced life. Um, and so God's going to show up and he's going to provide uh, them with a child. So this is, uh, again, something we see over and over in the Old Testament. This time, though, a guy, his name is Zechariah. He's a priest. Um, he is approached by an angel uh, and he, he's told uh, about your, your wife's going to be pregnant. She's going to have a kid, right? And this is a big deal. We're going to be, we're going to be discussing things uh, in this way. Let me, let, me, let me backwards for one second. What we learn about Luke chapter two is shaped by two different birth announcements. We walked through one of them last week, which is what I'm talking through right now. And then he's about to go into another one. 
But the birth announcement thing is a big deal. The angel shows up and it's all immediately Luke begins with a supernatural sort of angels are on the scene, which is very different. Mark doesn't go into any supernatural sort of stuff until much, much later. In, in, but in, in Luke's, it's like there's an angel in Epiphany and he's having this conversation with him. He's like, Zachariah, your wife is gonna become pregnant and, and, he, and your son is gonna be very, very different. He's gonna be um, kind of an, a holdover from an Old Testament prophetic. He's gonna be like, look like an Old Testament prophet. He's gonna be a weird guy in the desert. He's gonna dress differently. He's gonna eat differently. He's gonna take a Nazarite vow, which means he's not gonna cut his hair and he's not gonna drink any wine. Uh, he's, gonna be, um, he's gonna be a weirdo. He's gonna draw people to him, but more importantly, he's gonna pave the way for what God is going to do in the world. He's gonna be the way maker. He's gonna point towards something. He's gonna gather the attention of the people and then he's gonna point them to Jesus and he's gonna create a prepared people for what God is doing in the world. That's where we left off last week is, is him saying, it's not gonna be, God is already doing something. He's looking to start a remnant of people who get what he's doing. And your son is gonna be a part of that. It's gonna be a big part of that. So that's where we left it off is this, uh, this whole big thing. And, and uh, Zachariah's response uh, briefly is uh, one of shock, one of, um, I don't know how this is gonna work out. He says, uh, sounds great, but you should know. Uh, my wife is X amount of years old and that's not gonna, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you do math. I don't know how angels do the whole birthing thing, but um, doesn't work out that great for us. And so then the angel responds to him and says, um, are you, sounds like you're doubting God's ability to kind of do something. Let me, let me be clear with you again. God does what he wants to do. He's not waiting for you to do anything. Um, he, he initiates and your response, your, your, uh, your opportunity is in the response. What do you wanna do in light of what God is going to do? The Old Testament lived with a sense of, we gotta clean the way, we gotta prepare the way of the Lord, we gotta do things right, and then maybe God will come back. And he's like, Luke is adamant about starting off and talking about, God is going to do his thing. He's going to do it. He's waiting and he's hoping that there'll be a people who are receptive, who are watching and waiting and wanna be invited into this. And so that's the significant piece. As a result of you not being in that spot, um, you're gonna be mute. I'm gonna um, cause you to be, uh, uh, not be able to speak. And, uh, and, and so the story goes, like it, whether you believe it or not or whatever, is, is he walks out of this temple, clearly after taking a long time, everybody's like, something happened in there, I don't know what it was. He comes out not being able to speak. He's trying to learn adult sign language at an, at an old age, which is probably, a, a, you, know, you know, I'm choking, like all this kind of, we do, we, that's the only sign language that we know, this, right? Uh, and imagine him trying to be like, you know, live and, and go through life and people being like, what happened in there? And he's looking like, Angel, I don't know how to, what, what's the word for that? How do I describe that? I can't talk, wife's gonna be pregnant. Uh, it's, it's, it's mine, don't worry, it's fine. You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of different drama that's happening here. Um, and then the story shifts to him going home and his wife getting pregnant and she kind of like talks herself away for like a five month period, either, either out of nobody's gonna believe this story or this is just for us. We're not gonna post anything about this on social media. We're gonna keep this to ourselves. Um, and that's kind of where it's at. And then the story then shifts over. That's where we're gonna spend majority of our time today. Another birth announcement. We learn so much from birth announcements, right? Um, and uh, I, one of my favorite, Nate Bergazzi, I think it's Nate, um, who we just watched on, on the video, um, talks about Nate birth announcements. I mean, like these are, I hate watching people with birth announcements because uh, it, they're always shocked when they pop the balloon and it's either you know blue or pink. And they're like, why are you shocked? You're like, oh my gosh, it's a girl. What? And you're like, what were you expecting, right? I mean, like, have you ever flipped a coin? It's 50-50. Well, have you ever flipped a coin and been shocked at its heads? Don't be shocked. That's how it works. What are we expecting, an alligator? You know, I mean, I don't even know what's going on. Anyways, 
so there's this other presentation of a birth announcement that's going to take place. And the point of bringing the second one is to contrast how what took place in the first one. Here's what happened with somebody who was barren and, and was announced with, that they were going to have a kid and the doubt and the, all the kind of things that happened and what God was going to do. And then here's this, verse 26 of chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's Zachariah's wife, that's the other one, right? God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. So instead of showing up inside of the temple in the Holy of Holies with a crowd watching him go in, because this is a big deal, the once a year that they would do this, uh, now he's appearing to a woman in a rural part of town outside of Galilee, a nobody, a, no, a no-name hut, all this kind of stuff, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, not even married at this point. They would go through two stages of an engagement process. One would be, you know, and we kind of do this a little bit now. I'm engaged to somebody, right? We're going to get married at some point. Uh, and then then the actual marriage takes place. It would be a little bit more, because right now you could be like, the engagement's off and it's not that big. Of, it is a big deal, but it over there, it was it was it was a more of a, a different sort of treatment, but definitely not to that stage. A descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. Two mentions of her virginity, which is a, a big deal, right? And everything that you know about Mary, probably even if you're not really like a you know churchy person or religious person, uh, if I said, "What do you know about Mary?" You'd say, "I don't know, virgin birth." I mean, that, that's kind of a kind of part and parcel of, of who she is or what she's about. And what he's doing is saying, "Barrenness was an issue in the first one; virginity is an issue in the second one." Something that's improbable, but not impossible. You've heard people who are barren for a long time. We, ha- we weren't able to have kids for 10, 15 years. And then all of a sudden we were. And you're like, wow, crazy. That's awesome. Very rare, but good for you, right? And then you've heard, you know, then you, then you have on the other flip side of things, you've never heard of somebody going virgin birth that happened. You'd be like, oh, sure. Okay, whatever. Uh, if that's what you want to tell yourself, that's fine. Um, so he's, they, what, he's do, what he's doing is saying, contrasting, here's something that's improbable, and now here's something that's impossible. Here's something that is, one, like, like wow, God is doing something. God is clearly involved in this over here, right? And then to then go on to this and be like, I mean, he must be involved in this. If this is what you actually believe, this is something. And, and by the way, I do want to make mention one, one thing here. Um, if For some people, you know, Christianity has been, I can get behind a guy who is, you know, Jesus, like, uh, I can get behind a Jesus who, you know, tells us to pray for our enemies and is kind and gracious and all kinds of things. It's it's a struggle for me, some of the supernatural stuff. And one of the things, the sticking point perhaps is a, a virgin birth. If I have to believe that a virgin birth took place, uh, then therefore I, you know, throw the baby out the bathwater and, and I just can't do that. And it, it, it is... Um, an interesting perspective, and I, I do think that one of the things that you see in the early church fathers is them taking sort of a sort of a take it or leave it approach to it. They believe it, they put it in the in the creed, but um, they also kind of uh, allow. They didn't write about it a ton, and so um, I, I I think that in that you could do some research. Just don't reject the whole Christian story because uh, because of this one unique feature of it. But I do think what was what he's trying to communicate. What Luke and Luke's the only one that writes about it anyway. Anyways, in the Bible. What Luke is trying to communicate is the uniqueness of Jesus. That when you think about it, this is unique. This isn't, doesn't happen anywhere else. It doesn't happen to anyone, anyone else. He's trying to say what we have in Jesus is impossible. What we have in Jesus is unique. What we have in Jesus is special. It's something other than everything that we've ever had before. So then we're going to continue with the story. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled 
at his words. Remember Zachariah, when he's presented with an angel, freaks out like most people in, in scripture when they're presented with an angel where their first words have to be, hey, fear not, don't worry, it's okay. Uh, hers is, I'm not necessarily feared at your presence, but I am afraid of what you said. When you said, hello, Mary, greetings to you who are highly favored. I'm questioning your introduction or your use of the word to describe who I am because I don't think that you actually know me. I'm not lucky or highly favored. When you say, oh, you lucky dog, you, I'm wondering what it is that you're talking about. I'm looking over my shoulder to see who you're talking about because I'm just married. I'm a 14-year-old probably engaged to be married to somebody that, and that's going to bring me significance in terms of now I've got, I, you know, I'm married into a certain Davidic line and now I get to have kids and I get to have a family and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm on the pathway towards being a somebody, but right now I don't feel like a somebody. So why are you saying these things to me? If you walked into work tomorrow and the first person comes up to me like, you dog, you, you lucky dog, you, you'd be like, what's going on here? What are, you, what are you talking about? What do you know that I don't know, right? I mean, you'd be on your toes, all of a sudden alertness. You'd be like, I'm trying to listen for, is there a, like a promotion that's coming up that's something I don't know about? Is there, is there something? And, and especially for you, that you would be on high alert if you had gone into that, into that job and you'd only been there for a short time. Or you're like finishing orientation. And everybody's like, man, you, the work that you do. And you're like, do you know me? I just started here. You don't know what I do. I don't know what I do. You know what I mean? I have nothing to be proud of in terms of what, you, what you're saying doesn't match up to my experience of reality. So I'm, I'm concerned about this, about the situation right now. There's a lot of unknowns and a lot of fear about that. All right, so that's, that's what's happening with this. All right, uh, verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. To which she would be like, why? What did I do? You will conceive and give birth to a son. More on that in a second. And you are to call him Jesus. Again, so in, in Zechariah's uh, presentation of the angel, uh, there's, you're going to have a son. His, you are going to name him John. And the angel shows up here. You're going to conceive. You're going to have a kid. You're going to name him Jesus. So in both scenarios, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to name him. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. He will be great. When Zechariah is told about John, his son John, he says, he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. And yet in this scenario, uh, Luke is trying to contrast it with, he'll be great, not just in the eyes of the Lord. Like there's, there's no qualifi qualifiers for this. He's trying to say, look at this and then look at this. Not he'll be great in the eyes of the Lord. He's gonna be great. And he will be called a son of the most high. He'll be called son of the most high. For them, that was a way of saying, that is somebody who characterizes everything about this. The son of the gods or the son of kindness, or the son of generosity. If you were a son of generosity, it means that you were so generous, it was the core of your being. That's just who you were. Son of the most high. For them, most high was reserved for this sort of monotheistic treatment of a God a most high God who is above all of the other gods. He is not the God of the water or the God of the land or the God of fertility or the God of war. He is the God over all of those things. In the book of Daniel, uh, when, when Nebuchadnezzar is presented with this idea, uh, uh, it's the idea of uh, I, this is the God, the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he wishes. This, this perspective of this new category of this. And Mary is presented with a story of saying, your son, that thing that's inside of you, that's growing, he's gonna be a character, his life is gonna be characterized by the most high God. 
He's going to be somebody who is deeply associated, that there's a special intimate relationship to God. I, I don't think that in this scenario, there would have been a presentation of, like for us, we think of Jesus as the son of God in terms of like father, you know, father God and then, and then, and then Jesus, son of God. Um, that's not what's being presented here. She's just being told he's going to be really, really, really great. Like you don't even understand how great he's going to be. And then he goes into like these regal overtones. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. David was also always, he was like the best king of Israel. He was the uh, archetype of what it means to be king of, of the nation. And so he's going to be a David-like ruler. He will reign over Jacob's descendants. Who are Jacob's descendants, right? Israel itself as a national focus. His kingdom will never end. That's, all, that's a, a unique one. But they had a lot of ways of, of saying that, like, this is king, may, may that king live forever, right? Or we say, uh, whatever, we, we celebrate that in that way. But there's, there's this idea of kingdom coming. Your son's going to be a king of sorts. She doesn't even know what that means, but it's very, very clear that Luke is going to do this in another way as well. When the angels come and announce the birth of Christ to the shepherds and to the people watching or whatever, um, there he's going to use uh, regal sort of language. In that day and time, there would have been heralds that would have gone out from Rome into all of the different disparate countries and, uh, you know, fringe territories being like, great news, everybody. We have great news, good news for the entire world to hear. Today, a savior has been born. He is the prince of peace and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name is Caesar Augustus. And he is the son of the God, Caesar, Julius Caesar, who has died. It's, it wasn't even his real son, it was his adopted son, but it doesn't matter. They're, they're taking this advent of good news and Luke borrows this to be like, listen, a new king is coming. He's gonna be an actual king who is gonna bring actual peace, who's, who the governments of the world are gonna be on his shoulders. Like there's a, 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 this, is a this is a bigger thing that you realize. This is then uh, when uh, Mary responds with a question, how will this be? How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Again, the same, almost the exact same question that we see when we're comparing the two birth narratives. What does Zacharias say? Zacharias says, how can this be? I'm really, really old. My wife's really old too. I'm not allowed to tell you how old she is, but she's old. Old enough to cause some confusion for our neighbors. Mary says, how can this be? I am a virgin. Then uh, the angel begins to respond and to talk her through all these kind of different scenarios. But what we're seeing over, over and over again is here's one, here's another. Improbable, impossible. Great in the eyes of the Lord, great in general. This man's gonna be an Old Testament prophet. He's gonna be a, a nationalistic figure. He's gonna be just like an archetype of an Old Testament prophet. Really, really great. This one's gonna be a king. He's gonna be like Caesar. He's gonna be, uh, the government's gonna be on his shoulders in this way. Uh, this is, they're, they're balancing, he's balancing these things back and forth, trying to get us to understand who Jesus was in light of everything. He's like everything that we have in the Old Testament, but he's a step up from that. It's very, very significant. Then the angel presents what's gonna happen to her uh, and her response is so brilliant. It says this, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. I am the Lord's servant. Notice the humility involved in this. Not, it's about time I was recognized. Not, I deserve this. Thank you for finally seeing something in me that nobody else saw, but I've had it within me the entire time. I am the Lord's servant. If this is what God wants to do, I'm willing to go for it. That's essentially her response. And then it says, the angel left her. 
And then Luke goes on to describe a brief narrative where Elizabeth, pregnant Elizabeth, meets up with pregnant uh, Mary, and uh, when they meet, um, in the baby inside of uh, Elizabeth like kicks her in the stomach as soon as they get close to Jesus and Mary, and and, and she goes, man, I've never had that happen before. There's something significant. Blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It's a big long like you know they're having they're two pregnant moms talking about what it's like to have a kid, man. They're just like loving life, enjoying things, right? And then what happens in verse 46, and this is where we'll close with this sort of kind of talk, right? Mary breaks out into a song or what's known as a hymn or better known as Mary's Magnificat, right? This is her way of like a response. If you've ever, have you ever watched a movie and then halfway through the movie or at some point in the movie, it breaks out into like a musical movie and you like didn't know that that's what you were watching and you're like, Oh, are we doing this now? Like, I don't understand. All of a sudden, everybody's and like they're looking at the camera and the, 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 the there's you know music and all kinds of different things. And it's like, oh, I remember watching La La Land for the first time. Or there's another movie too that had, that had some sort of thing. I didn't realize what it was. I just thought, oh, this is getting great reviews. We should go see this. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's a musical. Oh, okay. You just have to kind of like shift in your seat a little bit, right? And sometimes you hate it. I've, I've had people go, I can't stand Bosler and you know, whatever. I love it. I think it's great. I think it's, I, I, I'm in for it. I just need to know what it is before I buckle up into it. Well, I'm telling you this so you can buckle up. There's gonna be a few songs that are showing up in Luke's narrative. In fact, four songs over the course of his story of Jesus' birth trying to communicate these truths. We're gonna look at two of them in this series. But it's almost as if there are some truths for them that are best communicated through music um, or there are things that uh, the, the early church would have begin to, begun to sing and recite back to each other. Because again, when the early church started, there was no Bible. The Bible in its current form would not have come into practice until about 400 AD, but they did have some like, you know, they would have some sort of, uh, of books or, or things to kind of talk through. But early on, it was a bunch of them just sharing stories and teaching each other songs, theology through songs. And so what we get here is probably an early Christian church hymn about Mary's response to finding out about the annunciation of her, you know, the virgin child or the, the, the birth that she's about to have and who Jesus was. Significant deal. And it's important uh, because if I were to kind of ask you to memorize a certain passage of scripture, there'd be like, probably a slim chance. We don't do a lot of memorization, except when it comes to music, don't we? If I were to start playing some Greatest Showman soundtrack stuff, there'd be a lot of people in this room who'd be like, I know this one. This is a good jam. This is, this is pretty good. Not any musicals, that one was all right, right? The family one, if we're gonna watch family, that's, we, 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 we can learn stuff through this. So we're, we're not unlike them. They did this too. They sang this to try and capture the emotions involved in Mary's realization about what God was doing through her. And before I read it, because it's going to take a few verses in there, 46 through 55, what you also need to know is that Mary was most likely incredibly poor, did not come from much. If you're living in Nazareth that time, other people would hear that Jesus came from Nazareth and they would say, Nazareth, what good has ever come from Nazareth? So you pick your own city. I don't care where it is. If it's close to here, that's fine. It's a little jab. If it's Spokane, that's fine too. What good has ever come from Spokane? You know what I mean? Like we, we and Spokane says that about Tri-City, so that's fair. Uh, but imagine that, like this is a nobody from nowhere. 
for a lot of people, uh, they would say this is one of the songs of the poor. They had a category of songs from the poor. These are songs that the kids were too poor to go to you know, any sort of formal education. They, would not, they didn't have a public school system, but there would be people who would get trained and if you were smart, you kind of kept going along in school. The rest of you got trade jobs and went to go work as a fisherman or something else. Um, so this would be a song of the poor. This is their way of doing some sort of a training because they couldn't make it in formal education circles. And it sings a little differently. In the same way, uh, when you look at, if you like, uh, have heard some of like, the Negro spirituals, you realize that there's a style of music that can only be sung by people who have experienced that kind of a life, that the deepness and the, the truthness, the coarseness, that you can't sing a song of the poor as someone who grew up with air conditioning in a full fridge and lunches packed for you every day. Do you know what I mean? There are, there, there are there, and it shows up in art, it shows up in, in music even in today of people who sing these songs of what it was like to be this. And you're like, dude, you went to Yale. What are you talking about? You don't know what it's like to be back in the hood. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like that's not, that's not reality. That's not due course. We, um, I'm a huge Gonzaga basketball fan um, and it's college basketball season. So it's like a great time. And we have gotten right to the brink of winning national championship and losing it several times. And it seems like every time that we lose, it's been to a team that just plays a little bit harder than us in terms of defense and hustle and whatever. And the joke in between me and my Gonzaga friends, because I don't listen to jokes from other friends outside of the circle, because I just think that they're bitter because their team sucks. But um is we don't have enough kids who grew up playing hoops outdoors. You know what I mean? Our kids all grew up playing hoops indoors. We need a couple of kids on our team that grew up playing outdoors, that play with a little bit of, little bit of toughness and grit that you only get from doing that. That's what's happening in this song. What's about to be sung is a song of the poor. It's been shape-shifted and it's been moved, but it's a song of somebody who's experienced a poverty of self that comes shining through. Listen to this. Verse 46 of chapter one. And Mary said this, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Listen, she's not doing this out of ego. Everybody's gonna remember me. Right, like our our like my, our youngest generation is obsessed with fame. I just want people to know me and like me and follow me on Instagram or YouTube or whatever. Um, in this scenario, she's she's more stating a fact than saying, "Oh my gosh, it's going to be so great. People are going to know who I am." She's saying people are going to forever remember me because of this event, and I did nothing to earn this. I'm approaching it with a sense of humility. Holy is His name. Not holy is my name, holy is his name. He chose to do this. I don't know why, I'm a nobody. Why he would choose me, I have no idea. Angel, I know nothing about what you say. Oh, the luck of you. I don't feel lucky. I don't feel worthy of any of this. V wants to do it, fine, I'm willing. But he's got probably better options out there. Then she goes on, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Fear is not like, oh, I'm afraid of God, but like have an awe and reverence and respect for him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
This is a big one. This is a, the, probably the most famous line that comes from her, her song. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Here's what he does. Here's what he's about. Here's who he's for. He's for anyone and everyone. He's done this for me, paragraph one, but he just does this for people who are willing to accept and willing to respond. And then she goes in, in, in paragraph three, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Three breakdowns of this. Here's what he's done for me. Here's what he does towards people who will respond to him graciously. And here's what he does for his promised nation of Israel, that he follows through on his promises. That he is a God of promises who does come through on those every single time. And here's what we know. Here's what we see. Here's the themes that show up in this. God is merciful to those who fear him. His power overcomes the proud. He exalts the humble. He responds to the hungry with hands open, with his hands open. He resists the proud rich. And it's not something that he's done. It's who he is. The verb tense in the way that he talks about this, in, that Luke presents about this or puts in the mouth of Mary. Because the odds are, I don't think she actually sang this song. I think this is Luke putting together this as a, a way of, uh, of illustrating this. But here's a God who uses somebody like Mary. Here's a God who chose this path and who chooses this path. It both has happened and it continues to happen and it will happen. This is who he is. This is how he operates. This is what he does. This is what he's all about. When you have somebody in your life who is generous towards you and you go and tell somebody about this and they go, that's amazing. That's so awesome that he or she did this for you. And you'd be like, that's what they do. That's just who they are. They're just like, it wasn't anything about me. It was just, it's about them. It's not about me being worthy of the gift. And I finally was recognized for my contribution to this organization. No, 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 no. That's not humble. That's like, you know, get, I mean, I, maybe getting rewarded for what you've done, but this is going, that's, they're doing this and it's all glory to them, not to me. This is all about them in this way. It's not what they've done necessarily, for me specifically, it's what they do all the time. They're just, that's who they are. Luke is illustrating this. He's trying to say to Theophilus, but then knowing that this is gonna be read from generations of the church beyond this, this is a God who is going to do his work, who's looking for a remnant of people, not people who deserve it, but for people who go, me, if you wanna use me, you can, but You've got better options. And he's like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. That's the kind of humility that I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the proud rich who think that they deserve it and, and God would be lucky to have me on his team. He's like, I'm looking and waiting and watching for something different than this, which is why Luke would then go on in a few minutes, in, in a few chapters after, uh, after chapter two, to begin to talk about who did he approach for the very first time to tell about the birth of Jesus? Not the wise magi from other distant nation. That's Matthew's approach. Matthew's trying to put Jesus at the forefront of like the entire world and say all the wisdom of the world comes and finds its, you know, its, its uh, heritage or its, its source in Jesus. Matthew has a different approach. He's trying to talk about you know, propping up uh, Jesus as this ma major uh, world figure and, and regal and, and kingdom and all this kind of stuff. And, and, but Luke's approach is very much to the poor, very much to the, the, the disenfranchised, the broken down. He, who does he show up for? Who, who, who's, who does the angel say, here's who's most important? It's the shepherds who are mining their sheep in the, in the, in the, in the fields. What, what does it mean to be a shepherd? It means that you couldn't get a job anywhere else. You live outside, you live with animals. Animals are your friends. The only people that talk to you are animals and they don't even talk to you. You just think that they do because you're crazy because you're a shepherd. 
You do it, you're doing the job that nobody else wanted to do. You're, you're the refuse of society. Like you get to come into town once in a while and, and like take showers and clean up, but like you're too, you're, you're, you're too outside of kind of normal society to even engage in like regular life. You gotta go live in the, the hills and the mountains somewhere. That's where you kind of deserve to live. And Luke says, this is a God who started his story with people like them with people like them, with someone like Mary, with anybody who's willing to respond in this way, to say, I don't have much, but if you wanna do something in me, if, you want, if, you, if you're doing something in the world and it's not dependent on me, but you're inviting me to be a part of it, I'm in. I wanna do my part. So as we watch and we wait, what are we watching and we waiting for? We're watching and waiting for a God who is doing incredible things in the world. And he looks at idiots like me and idiots like you and says, you wanna be a part of it? You wanna do it? You wanna come alongside, bring a little bit of kingdom on, on, uh, on, in heaven on earth? You wanna do this? I'm doing a great work and I could use your help and I could use you if you wanna do it. We watch and we wait and we watch and we wait. And eventually the stars show up and we celebrate Christmas, but not yet. Not yet. And not next week either, although you should come next week for part three of our Advent series as we look at Zachariah's song in response to this, and we'll continue from there. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that, uh, we, one, we're just thankful that you use idiots like us to be able to do all the things that you are already doing in the world. And I pray that we would approach uh, you with the humbleness uh, that Mary exemplified for us, uh, that we would not be the proud rich in this scenario, uh, that rely on our wealth to kind of provide us with a sense of security or some sense of significance or value in life or define who we are, uh, but our dependence is upon you as it really, really truly is. And even though we sometimes lose sight of that. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. I encourage you something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.